Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello, everyone, and welcome to There's No Business Like. I'm Katie Miller, kicking it here with my friends, the quad producers, Josh. Josh Benson, rocking it out in Marion, Illinois at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Kevin. Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts, splitting the border between Iowa and Illinois. Hey, Danielle. Hey, it's Danielle Van Hook from the McLean Community Center. Last but not least, Brian. Hey, Katie. Brian Zelmer from KU Presents at Kutztown University. And I'm Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. Excited to get into our conversation this morning. But first, I wanted to ask you all, what is your favorite venue that you've ever worked in? We're all theater people, music people, obviously arts administrators. So what is you know, your favorite, most magical venue that you've ever either performed in or managed? Mine would be, it's on SIU Carbondale, Southern Illinois University Carbondale's campus. Um, and it is Shryock Auditorium. And it's this beautiful, ornate theater, uh, seats about 1,200. And that was my student job there as a lighting designer and a tech director. I fell in love with that space as the first large space I'd ever worked in. I managed a movie theater for like five years in my evenings whenever I decided I couldn't have a career in theater because it's not stable enough, which, you know, hey, I was wrong. But um, that was uh, an old 1914 vaudeville house that had been turned into a movie theater. And so, again, all this like beautiful ornate work all over the place. And I just love those old historic houses like that. Yeah, tagging on to Josh, I mean, talking about historic venues, the first venue that I managed was the Orpheum Theater in Galesburg, Illinois, uh, which is a 1916 vaudeville house. And it also became a movie house for a while and then back to a performance venue. And it is just beautifully ornate. It was a rap and rap house. And, you know, it has just a lot of that beautiful history and just a, a like you can you can feel the energy in that space and it will always be one of the best spaces that I've been able to It's really just the ghosts, Kevin. <laughs> which which is true. I mean <laughs> No, I think I know what Kevin means. I have that like kind of same feeling of a lot of the older theaters from like I don't know, like when I first started getting into theater and, and into college, like those like older buildings um that had been like refurbished in some ways or reused, like they have that energy. You know, and I think there is a nostalgia from just like a time period kind of associated with the favorite space. But when I was in college there was um, a flexible theater space that opened and it just had all these really unique design elements and it just allowed theater to like breathe and be big without ever there being a performance in that space. It already had this energy and I'll never forget that. That's by far the best um, and otherworldly experience. My favorite theater uh, was the Rialto Theater in Loveland, Colorado. It's a, another historic theater night, built in 1920. It was built as a vaudeville house and you know, it was part of the vaudeville circuit and every every name in the day came through there. Um, and also movies, of course, you know, as as those theaters were primarily movie theaters. But what was what was interesting when I got there and I was getting out and learning, the, you know, the community and, and getting to know what they thought and wanted and needed in the in the venue. What became apparent to me is people had this relationship with the venue already. Other venues have been beautiful and people have been, oh, this is a cool place to see concerts or whatever. But I've never seen the kind of connection that that just the local community had with a building. And as I worked there, I started to feel it right away myself. And for me, I thought it was personal. I've mentioned on this podcast before that my grandfather was a, a vaudeville performer, you know, Juilliard singer, crooner. 
and uh, my grandmother was a uh, an opera singer, and they both performed in venues like this. And so, uh, you know, there was a lot of nos- nostalgia is a weird word to use, but I was nostalgic about being in this venue, imagining, you know, what it would be like to be in the room to hear them perform. So that was kind of like an added connection for me. And that's, that's why I've always felt so close to that space. You know, when I was planning this question, I was thinking about all the theaters that I've worked in. And my clear answer is, the first venue I ever managed, which was the Playhouse at White Lake. And actually, as we're recording today, I'm wearing a Playhouse at White Lake t-shirt, my wonderful White Lake Youth Theater t-shirt, which is one of my favorites. But uh, when I took her over, she was 96 years old. And as you can imagine, uh, there's just something special about a space with that much history uh, and that has served a community for so long. And uh, yeah, I have such a a relationship with that space that has gone beyond my time there. I've been away from, from that venue for, you know, several, several years now. We won't put a date on it. Um, but she is still my favorite space to walk into, to work in, to go see a show in. Um, and yeah, I just, I just don't think there's any other space that will ever hold the same place in my heart as the Playhouse at White Lake. Well, I love that we all have such an affinity for historic venues because that's going to play a big part in my conversation today with my dear friend, Xavier Verna, who's the director of the historic Ramsdale Theater in Manistee, Michigan. And uh, we're going to dive into talking about venue management and all sorts of other um, topics during this conversation. So I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Xavier Verna. I'm the executive director at the Ramsdale Regional Center for the Arts in Manistee, Michigan. Hello, Xavier. Welcome to There's No Business Like. It's so exciting to have you with us today. For everyone who's not familiar with Michigan geography, which is like one of our obsessions here on the podcast, uh, if you're looking at your hand, Manistee is like, it's kind of like at the knuckle of your pinky finger, maybe? Is that like about where it is? Yeah, that's right. I had the wrong <laughs> hand. I was trying to orient myself like, how are people? Yeah, I should have just used the right hand like we always do. <laughs> that's so funny. So you were in Manistee, Michigan, which is on the Lake Michigan side of Michigan, right on the coastline. Um, and you, we know each other uh, through just being Michigan presenters. And we have been part of the Michigan presenters network and done some routing and booking together. Um, And so, you know, I'm really glad to have you join us today and talk about your work, talk about what it's like to be a small town presenter. I'm going to ask you to start with your origin story. So how exactly did you get into the arts? How did you start? And how did you end up in your current role at the Ramsdale? I went to the University of Michigan to study music performance and education. So actually, at first, I wanted to be a band director. That was my, well, I'll take that back. At first, I wanted to be an orchestral musician. Then I wanted to be a band director. Then when I got to school, I didn't really know what I wanted, uh, because that kind of opened the world for all these possibilities as a musician and working in the field of the arts, which I didn't know existed. Fast forward, I, I graduate, I get involved as a freelancer, uh, playing music, teaching a lot. And there was this opportunity to work for an organization I had previously worked for in, in smaller capacities, the Sphinx organization. And that was my introduction into arts administration. Again, another thing I didn't know about going into the field of the arts, but I was very happy that I did take that opportunity because it just it, it felt so right for where I was in my life. And it really felt good to be that facilitator 
for people in need of exposure to the arts. And what Sphinx did and is still doing to this day is promoting classical music to Black and Latino communities where those resources don't currently exist. And, you know, I got to work with schools in Detroit, schools in Flint to offer free violin lessons. And I got to hire the teachers to go teach that. And we got to buy the violins for these kids and all these amazing things. And I just thought, wow, like, this feels really good, you know, to be working in the nonprofit sector, you know, it, to, to be in that, in that space where you really are trying to address a systemic issue, you know, felt really good, felt like you were making a difference in the world. And so I kept that going. Uh, I worked there for about five years. And then I moved to Onekama in Michigan, which is the same area here in Manistee. Uh, my wife's from here. So when we, deci- when we decided we were going to live together, that's where we, uh, we decided to live. And at the time, the Ramsdale was hiring for an executive director. So the stars aligned. And I got that position almost six years ago now. But yeah, that, that's sort of the, the quick origin story. I love that. Now, you still are an active artist, right? You're still a performer? Yeah, I, I don't play as much, but I get, to, uh, I get to teach right now, which is really great. For me, I, I always say I have to have teaching in anything that I do. If I'm strictly arts administration, you know, that's fine. But I have to have a little teaching on the side. So I, I get to work with a few of the students in the local schools here. I get to work with the students at the community college just south of here. I'm playing a little bit, too. I sometimes play in their pit orchestras or the musicals, sometimes play in the wind symphony band. So you know, I just feel it's it's a it's a good, healthy, you know, meditative thing for me. And so, you know, not freelancing as much, but definitely, you know, trying to keep keep up with teaching. So let's talk a little bit more about your venue, the Ramsdale Regional Center for the Arts. So first of all, I know that that hasn't always been the name of the building. So can you give us a bit of the history and how the facility is used now? Yeah, quite a history. Next year, the building turns 120 years old. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it was it was listed in the National Historic Registry in 1972. So it is officially a historic landmark. And it has served the community in a variety of capacities. Whenever there was a time of need, the Ramsdell was there to serve. I think that's what makes the building so special to this community. And, you know, the nonprofit is the Ramsdell Regional Center for the Arts. But the building will forever be the historic Ramsdell Theater. What the interesting side of that is, there's it's 40, there's 46,000 square feet to this building. So it's pretty big where there's an art gallery in here. There's a ballroom and then there's a theater in addition to a few other nooks and crannies, right? When the building was built, the hall side was built first in 1902. And then the, a year later, the theater opened in 1903. In the time that it has been around, it gave birth to the Manistee Recreation Association, you know, at one point there were kids here playing basketball in the ballroom and doing all sorts of recreational activities. There was a boxing club in the basement at one point. Uh, during the World Wars, 
the ballroom was an armory. And, and so there's just all these different things that, that uh, people use the building for. Now, as the RRCA, you know, we program performing and visual arts programming throughout the year. But there's also tons of rental opportunities and community events that happen. Right now, we're actually, it's a whole community activity. It's the ushering of the holiday season in Manistee. And there's this big non-motorized parade that happens on River Street. But in this building, there's the Festival of Trees that happens in the ballroom. We have an art gallery going on. We have events happening in the theater. And there are thousands of people that come through this building in like two or three days. It's amazing. So uh, it, it's a lot of fun activity. And that's what this building has always done. It's just created that atmosphere for people to engage in all sorts of different things. Uh, and we're very proud to continue that legacy. That's amazing. And I, uh, as a former manager of a historic venue as well, I understand the role that it can play in a community and how there are moments that really stand out. Like the fact about it was an armory during the world wars. Like I didn't know that about your venue. That is fascinating. Uh, and that it has supported people in so many different ways. I think that translates really beautifully into what we are trying to do today as like contemporary arts administrators. So there's a lot of history and it's really cool and beautiful and fun to think about, but it also comes with a lot of weight of then managing that historic venue. So <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about like the challenges of managing a historic theater. Like I've been backstage in your place. It is so cool, but it's also, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to manage the facility, to manage the people. Like what is it like managing a historic venue like that? Think of like managing your home. Only you have to worry about thousands of more people that come through your home. <laughs> and not to mention you're not crazy when you decide you want to stand on stage and talk to your theater because all the stories about ghosts and all the stories about, you know, how, you know, you really got to treat this as like your baby are true. They're so true. There's so much heart and soul that goes into managing his, it's, it, the historic site is different than a modern building. It just is. You know, and of course we care for our modern buildings, but your work is compounded on all of the legwork from all the other people that have, you know, put in their heart and soul into the historic site. And so there's, there's a lot of meaning to that. You know, it's not just money that people have put into this place. You know, there's been so many volunteers and, and so many notable figures that have contributed to this place. And it really makes you want to do an even you know greater job at preserving it and presenting it to the community. History is what makes these places so unique. And that's that's what you have to really attach yourself to is learn the history of, of your historic site. Um, and that that's gonna help you get connected to the community. And so, you know, that that would be, you know, kind of what my experience has been the last weeks of years. Uh, I'm glad to hear that you also talk to your theater, because when I was at the Playhouse at White Lake, I would talk to her all the time. <laughs> I think there's a real bond that uh, forms between you and your venue when you spend so much time there, put so much so much blood and tears, right? Blood, sweat and tears into that. Yeah, um, there's a real bond that forms. So so. Beyond that, though, what is like the day-to-day -day, uh, considerations of running a historic 
theater. Like we're talking like heating systems. We're talking roofs. We're talking seating. We're talking <laughs> restrooms. Like what, what are those day-to-day sort of things that you have to concern yourself with? All of that. And, you know, managing public safety and you're managing quality control. And it's very hard to do that um, in a small community because a lot of what you program is going to be local community events. Here we do visual arts and performing arts. So there's a lot of talented people here and uh, there's a lot of passionate people here. And, you know, it's, it's just a mixed bag. And you have to be able to work with this community and present the community and, and feature them and because they matter. And that's the same thing I'm talking about, like being connected to your local theater and its history and its roots. Like all of that matters. And so you can't just bring touring artists. You can't just bring top of the line stuff and neglect to, to work with your community. Um, and, I, and that's true everywhere. But especially in a small community, people are very conscious of that. People want to be engaged. They want to feel like they're contributing. On top of that, you got to worry about your, your day-to-day operations that you know, are, are going to impact the presentation of anything that you do. And you know, those things that you mentioned, you, you think about every day. You know, when you're going to have a local show featuring community artists, you, you got to make sure that the heat's on in the winter for <laughs> for that to happen. You know, it's yeah. like it's not enough just to be, you know, friendly with the community folk. You got to make sure that you turn the heat on. So, you know, you really have to put in a lot of care into making everybody's experience top notch. And that that just goes with the territory. Having a facility like this, you know, having to worry about those utility things, it's just part of the game. You know, you can't you can't not worry about it, even, you know, as the executive director, it's always on your mind and things come up all the time. The elevators down or a lot of different things like that, just like your own home. You know, you're going to be thinking about these little things. And once you would uh, attack each of those bullet lists, you know, those bullet points that you make the to do list, you chomp at, you know, one every day. And it just gets better and better. And the and the presentations and all that, it just becomes second nature to you. So in the beginning, yeah, it seems like a lot, but you get used to the routine. So talk to me more about that balance of serving the community and featuring and focusing on the community and community artists with then bringing in presented programming. So touring artists, concerts, theater productions, how do you go about balancing those two needs? And what are your priorities when it comes to like artistic planning? It starts with a conversation with your board. You know, you have to make sure you're aligned with your board in terms of what you're trying to achieve in the community. And we had some time uh, during the pandemic to kind of dig deep and talk about what are we doing programming wise? You know, how, how do we balance all the things that we have been doing up until now? Because we were sort of, we were just going after almost every opportunity just to have something going on. And not that we were willing to sacrifice quality, but we were trying to, you know, book and, and plan a lot of different things to keep that community engagement. So the conversations led to us not restructuring, but really fine tuning that, that statement about the performing arts and about the visual arts. 
And in both of those statements, we purposely mentioned that we're also working to promote our local community talent, you know, that we're not just trying to bring in arts programming because we lack access to it geographically uh, or because we're, you know, small town, small budget, small stage, and we can only do so many things. No, but we're also being purposeful about engaging our local community because there is talent and there is quality within our local community. And that was something we needed to acknowledge first before we just started doing it. So the clarity is so important from the board level, from the from the top of the leadership level, because that translates to your staff and that translates to any of the volunteers that are involved. You know, so that that was a big step for us is is making sure we had that clear message. And then from then it it just becomes very easy. You know, you find people who are really interested in presenting their art. You also find people who are willing to do that and help steward some of these programs. So the opportunities are really endless you know, when you have that clarity of, of mission. Yeah, absolutely. And so then what is your booking philosophy for the presenting side of it? So you are fostering these community opportunities, whether that's theater, that's music, it's education. And then what layered on top of that, then what's your philosophy in terms of bringing in touring artists? So what are you looking for in an artist? What sort of genres are you thinking about? And how are you linking those two opportunities then to have community artists on your stage, as well as professional artists? So there's two sides of it. You know, one side of it is you have to make sure your business is sustainable. When we think about how we program throughout the year, we naturally tend to invest a lot more dollars in concerts and and bigger events in the summer because we're going to have a lot more people visiting town and a lot more people willing to spend money in town. And so what we tend to do in the summer is book those touring tribute acts, which do really well in our community. And they're, they're very fun. I mean, people, we, you know, we sell three to 450 tickets, you know, every time we do those. And so they're a good moneymaker for us, but also more importantly, it's what our community wants. They want engagement in some sort of music performance. And on top of that, you know, we're also looking to program uh, community events. So we have different groups within our community that do performances. We have the local theater company. We have the local dance company. We have uh, someone who just started a community band two or three years ago. And so we engage with them and we invite them to do performances at the theater as well, which also brings the community into the theater. And so as a, as a nonprofit organization that is the steward of this building, we also manage the box office for all the events. And so we provide that service and that level of support to those programs where, you know, those performing arts groups don't necessarily have all that infrastructure in place. Right. And so there's a way to work together to do exactly what we both want to do. And, you know, the bonus is we all get to bring the people here into the building. So we have to find a way to be valuable to them in order for us to partner and to bring those programs here and support our local community talent. So we focused a lot of our time in adding value to what we do and the kind of service we can provide so people can see that, oh, it makes a lot of sense to partner with the RRCA. I'm not just renting the space. It's a partnership. We're working together on a lot of different aspects. So it makes a lot of sense to me in a community the size of Manistee, about 6,000 people, that you are coming at the work from multiple directions. So I really love this idea of really focusing on community, um, especially in a, in a town that's small where 
everyone has skin in the game, right? To making sure that that place is, continues to be successful. Because you said, like you said, tourism is huge in West Michigan. It is like a number one in the summertime. Um, and so you want something to offer people too when when they come to town for a week or a long weekend or whatever too. So it sounds like you're really making smart choices when it comes to getting community to invest in the venue and in the nonprofit. Yeah, we, we think so. We really feel good about the progress, you know, and that's why we keep doing it is because people really do want to see this building and this community thrive. And so, I mean, that's the power of it all. You know, that that's what keeps the engine going. You know, otherwise, what's the point? You know, why go through all this trouble if people just don't want what you have to offer, right? So people have to want it and you have to find a way to connect with them, the local community, and find out what it is they want. And so when you do, it becomes really easy. And how have you gone about doing that? I mean, you're not native to Manistee. You had to come in as somebody new to the community and establish yourself and your connection. So how did you go about asking those questions and finding out what the community actually wanted? Yeah, in the beginning, I actually just threw out a survey and I just said, what do you want to see more of at the Ramsdale? And overwhelmingly, music was what they wanted. And so that was just my opportunity to respond to something they said they wanted. You know, that was one really easy way. Just ask a question and then see what you get out of it. And then it's been a lot of trial and error. At the end of the day, there's, I don't always get it right. And the other thing that we have strategically focused on doing is making sure that we have increased our partnerships. The important thing about partnerships is you're connecting with the community. It's purposeful, right? There are other community groups here that have other interests that align with your interests. So one, for example, that, you know, we just partnered with the Manistee Area Racial Justice Diversity Initiative. I know it's a mouthful. Um, Marge D., for short, wanted to work with us to do a art exhibit during Black History Month. And so we helped them apply for a Michigan Humanities grant. And then we apply for an Arts Midwest grant so that we can make this exhibit happen because it's not just featuring Black artists, but it's also inviting a lecturer. It's also inviting a uh, performer, uh, a Black performer to perform on stage. There's a theme to this exhibition too, the journey of discovery. And so it's about how Black artists in rural Michigan have impacted their local communities and how that journey, you know, has overall made that impact in, in, the, in the state of Michigan. And so we work together on that grant. They received the grant. Now this exhibit is going to happen and we have a partner in this and so we're not doing this all on our own. We're working with somebody whose values align with ours. And at the same time, we get to do performing arts and visual arts. It's a win-win. Yeah, it's a perfect meshing of the two art forms, right? Right. So it's really finding the right partnership. People are constantly coming to us with ideas, right? And, you know, we don't, we don't say yes to everything because that would just be you know, it would, it would be counterproductive. It's just, you can't do it all. Right. But you got to find the right ones that really move the needle forward for your organization, but also, you know, are impactful to the community as well. Sounds very exciting. 
So Xavier just mentioned moving the needle forward when it comes to this exhibit that you're going to be putting putting forward with this community partner. Um, so how have your professional and personal experiences shaped how you view this conversation in our wider industry around diversity, equity, and inclusion issues? You've obviously worked for Sphinx. Um, you've had other leadership positions. So we, can we talk for a moment just about you know the changes that are happening in our field? I guess I want to put it in in a different context. You and I are parents, right? And so we've learned certain things about how we can influence our children. And at the end of the day, they have gotten whatever DNA and genes from, you know, mom and dad that they're they're going to get. And and there's no way that we're going to be able to manipulate that or change that. You know, we can't change who they are. And you can't turn your child into this perfect little thing that you know, where they're not going to get hurt and they're not going to, you know, experience anything bad or whatever. And so you're in Manistee, you know, you got 98%, you know, white people around you. You're not going to change these people and the way uh, that they grew up, right? And, and there's nothing that you can do to change their history, right? Whatever they've experienced, they've experienced. And one of my concerns in the beginning was, how are they going to be accepting of me? Right. I'm a person of color and I'm not from here. And uh, am I going to be accepted in the community? And I had all these concerns. Right. But I got here and everybody welcomed me with open arms. And, you know, they were so nice and I didn't have anything to worry about. And to this day, I still don't. Is there racism in the community? Yeah, there's racism everywhere. Right. We see it on TV. We see it, you know, in, in our in our neighborhood. And so these things are always going to be there. What I saw when I moved here was that our assumptions about communities can sometimes be so far off than, you know, exactly what the uh, environment is like. And if you try to go in and think that you can change you know, how people think and, 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 you know, get them to see your side of things. It's not really the way to go. You have to work with the community that you have, right? If I would have moved into a community where it was very hostile, I would have probably left because it's not like I'm going to go in there and all of a sudden change, you know, how people react and engage in conversations about diversity you know, I, I moved into a community that's primarily white, but these are people who are open-minded. These are people who are welcome to change and welcome to new ideas. And they don't necessarily know everything, like things that I've struggled with in my life as a person of color. And, you know, so there's an opportunity when somebody's open-minded and somebody's willing to learn to work with them. And you create an environment for learning. And that's the connection to parenting. It's like you just got to create the right environment for them to learn and all these really good skill sets. And then they decide what they want to do with that. I think that that goes back to working with your community. You know, see, see what your community is about and what they're focused on. And, you know, start there. Start somewhere where there's some, uh, there's some shared values. And then kind of expand from there. And I don't think if I hadn't done that and, and, and reacted that way, I wouldn't have gotten to this place where now I'm working with Marge D to do this Black History Month exhibition. And last year, we worked with the same group to do 
a exhibition featuring Native American artists. And so, I mean, there's just, it's, it's a little bit at a time. You know, you can't, you can't solve the world's problems all in one year of programming. And so that, that has just been my, uh, my approach is create an environment where people can learn and be more aware of these issues. And then eventually over time, you know, it, it just hopefully it gets better and better. Thank you so much for sharing that. I appreciate your honesty. Are you encouraged at all by the wider conversation in our industry regarding um, equity when it comes to either racial diversity, um, gender equity, pay equity? I mean, uh, number of hours in the day, there's a lot of conversations happening. So how do you feel about those? And do you feel any encouragement um, as someone that has has worked in that sphere um, at different points in your career? Yeah, I'm all for equitable practices. You know, I know that for as a business manager, that can be really hard. I think that as a manager, it's it's pretty clear to me that, you know, when we engage with people who want to work for an organization, you know, they're going to come in with certain values and those values have to be met, you know, and if they're not met, they're not going to last long there. And I think, but, but there's two sides to it. Those people also have to understand the values of the organization. Right. And they have to be willing to adapt just as the managers and that organization is going to adapt to help. Right. So I think it's a two way street. You know, you can't just say, I want this and not give anything back, you know, and that's just all about relationship building. You know, there's more of a need for a partnership. Like nobody wants to feel like, you know, the cog in the wheel, you know, people, Mm -hmm. people want to feel like, they are making a difference. People want to feel like they are, they do have a seat at that table, that head table, and they get to say something. Totally. They get to be heard. Something I'm very encouraged to see Sphinx doing is promoting this, you know, C-suite of, of Black and Latino arts administrators, right? You know, that's, that's the real change. When those conversations include those voices, before it gets down to the musicians, before it gets down to the community impact, you know, that's, that's where you're going to see real change. And so, you know, I, I think that that's really encouraging to see in, in the greater sphere that there are organizations like that promoting for more engagement of different cultures at the table. That makes a lot of sense to me, Xavier. I love what you have to say about meeting in the middle and having the conversation and shared values. I think this is ultimately a conversation about shared values, right? Making sure that people are coming to the table, have a voice, but you are in line when it comes to values around um, how people are going to live their lives, how people are going to operate in the workplace, and then the art that we're putting forward as well. So thank you for giving us all something to think about there. So Xavier, I also want to talk about some of the other leadership roles you've had in the state of Michigan. Um, So you've served on several different boards. So can we take a moment just to talk about some other roles that you've had? Sure. Um, I, of course, got to be a part of Michigan Presenters. That was a very exciting time uh, as I was getting to know more about the presenting field. Uh, I got to work with you and all these other amazing board members from across the state to get uh, more information disseminated to our performing arts venues across the state about these issues that we're talking about when it comes to diversity and equity and equality, when it comes to different types of programs, the level of partnerships, marketing. We've had you know so many great conversations and we've gotten to visit so many different venues along the way. 
uh, and see what other people are doing and how they're operating. And it really does, uh, it has given me a lot of confidence in what we do here. So that was really fun. I got to be also a part of the State Arts Council. I served on there for three years. And this is an amazing group of people that, you know, all of us, you know, listening to this podcast probably know. They really worked very hard to connect more with their communities, the whole state of Michigan. And it's very impressive to see them doing that. Um, They're very purposeful about it. So it's not just, you know, a a place to go get money from. Like these are, these are people who you can really develop a good relationship with, and they're really there to help you and they want to see you succeed. And they're going to bat for you with the state legislators, you know, trying to get more funding, trying to have you make more of an impact across the state. So that was really an honor to be at that level you know, be at that table, you know, offering whatever I could to help them, you know, advance their mission. And so I've I've really enjoyed my time there too. I've been a part of a few membership programs as well, a national group, the League of Historic American Theaters. You know, that that's you know, anybody managing historic theaters, you definitely have to be a member. That was the one of the first conferences I went to. And the very first session I went to, I was sold. I was absolutely sold. Ken Stein, the president of the organization, talking about what makes historic theater so unique. And he all he talked about was history. And it was like, if you talk about your history, that's it. You could have a nice new modern venue down the road. They can't compete with your history. You know, and so th- that was like sort of that the confidence and motivational boost I needed starting off in, in my job. And uh, I have, you know, attended all their conferences and as much as I could. And so great membership organization to be a part of. Um, So, yeah, those are those are some of the some of the ones I've gotten to do in my six years. Yeah. And that's I mean, that's a lot of time spent away from your venue, away from your office. Right. When you are the president of the Michigan Presenters Network, you're serving on the MACC board, uh, you're attending LHAC conferences. So like, what is your motivation to uh, take on these additional responsibilities? Uh, and what would your advice be to, especially people just coming into the field about saying yes or saying no to some of these um, additional opportunities that you know may be presented to them in the future? Well, yeah, you have to make sure that whatever you do, you join, you're aligned with membership groups that support your program goals and your career aspirations and goals, you know? And so those organizations I chose to be a part of serve me in more ways than just, you know, figuring out a new idea for, you know, for my job. Like it it was also meaningful to me personally, you know, I have a personal motivation to, be smarter and wiser about the arts field and just like people in general. Like I want to learn more about people. I want to learn more about what everybody else has learned along their, you know, capacities serving the industry. And that's what you get to do in these places. You get to connect with all these people who have, who share that same value. They want to, they want to do better. They want to do more. It's cliche, but I really want to make a difference. And so I, I know that I don't have all the answers. And so, you know, I chose these places to, to be engaged in. And I would recommend that, you know, anybody looking to 
make a difference or, you know, want to have an impact to look for organizations that align personally as well as with your job goals. Yeah. Amazing opportunities to learn, right. To like learn and gain, gain knowledge, but also build relationships that are going to serve your organization and serve you from that moment forward. Right. This whole industry is about relationships. Yep. I think that's what we've, we, we've learned, especially over the last like two and a half years, right. Without the relationships, we all would have fallen apart. That's it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Big time. You know, and again, going back to the topic about small communities, I mean, that's hands down the one thing that's going to make or break you is whether you can maintain relationships with the local community, you know, and it's, you're not going to make everybody happy. I mean, just because you're in a small community doesn't mean that should be your goal, you know? So there are people that are ultimately going to not like decisions you make and they're, yeah, but that could just be, you know, the squeaky wheel, you know, but look at the, look at the bigger picture, you know, are people buying tickets? Are they donating to your organization? Are they volunteering? Right. If you've got a lot of people doing those three things, you're doing something right. You know, so it's it just gets down to relationships. How do you how you interact with those people? And if they like you as the leader, you will go really far. I love that wisdom. Thanks for sharing that. So let's go back in time to when you were first starting out as a performer. Mm. So you're like going to U of M as a freshman. Oh, wow. Going to be a music performance and education. Uh, so what do you know now that you wish you had known then? If I had a little bit more context around the music sphere, you know, it wasn't just playing music. Like there's all these other things that go into music making. You know, all I knew at the time was you play in band or you were a successful rap artist or a successful rock, you know, band artist, right? Uh, but, you know, there's all these other things within the music industry that I would have loved to know. And I, I was just so focused on playing music at the time. After college is when I discovered arts administration. And so, you know, I I wish it hadn't taken me so long to figure that out. You know, I wish I would have just somebody would have just said, hey, look, there's all these there's all these things you could do. Or, you know, maybe had had that. Uh, that right network to to kind of point me in the different directions. But, you know, that's okay. I'm not regretful or anything. But those are the kinds of things that growing up as a musician, you know, if, if there's a way to introduce those sorts of career opportunities, career paths, you know, from a from a high school age, you know, just to know about these opportunities, you know, I, I think that that would really help, you know, our college making decisions, our degree making decisions and all those things. And a lot of times musicians end up in completely different paths, you know, from originally where they wanted to be, which is being solely a musician. Uh, they end up working in, in some kind of line of business or music, or maybe they do something completely different, Right. you know, that's not music related. Oh, that's okay. But I feel like we, we, we don't have enough context going into it. And there's, there's a, there's an opportunity there, you know, to work with the younger students to kind of say, look, there's all these other, there's all these other doors, right. Right. And you can play music. You can be really good at it and you can play in a community band, but you could be doing these other things that help advance, you know, the, the greater good. There's a lot of ground to be covered with younger students. And honestly, as arts administrators, we can be that that example for young people in our community. We can be that mentor 
that we didn't necessarily have when we were growing up, someone to say like, hey, have you ever thought about this or hear all the different career opportunities? So I totally understand that. So, all right. So last question, what do you like most about working in the performing arts industry today? I love being at the events and seeing people come through the building and come in to have a good time. You know, that, that makes me so happy to see people engaged in, uh, in anything that we do here, visual arts, performing arts. I love when people come into the building and come together and it's like all those worries and concerns and political debates, they stay at the door, you know, people come in and they're here to have a good time. And so it's just really good energy. I love that. Um, you know, I love being busy like that, kind of running back and forth between box office concessions. And, you know, that that's kind of my favorite part. You know, it, it makes all the effort you put into planning an event, which is a lot. You know, it's, you know, it, 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 people think, you know, when they come to the show, you know, it's like, wow, you live in glamour. Oh, that's all smoke and mirrors, man. <laughs> I mean, it is hard work just to get ready for an event so that you could sit comfortably for an hour and a half and have your beer, you know, and watch a show, you know, but it's so worth it. And that, that part to me is, is the most exciting. Oh, well, I will second that. I do love to see how people react to the work that we do. So Xavier, my friend, thank you so much for taking the time today. I so enjoyed our conversation. It's great to actually just be able to sit down and chat about these issues. Uh, thanks for reminding me about my love for historic venues and waxing poetic for a moment about <laughs> our shared love there. Yeah. Um, we both, uh, yeah, I know that's something that uh, we've connected on in the past and I appreciate your work. I appreciate everything you bring to the presenting field in Michigan. So thanks for spending the time with us today. You bet. Thanks for having me, Katie. Katie, I thought Xavier was really cool to learn about. He I feel like I have this connection with him already because of my past working in a historic theater, small historic theater like he's in now. Um, a lot of the things he said I connected with, speaking with the building, um, I just like you and Xavier have done. I, I did that too. And I've never told anybody that until now um, because I thought I was the only one, you know? Oh, and, no. And it's true. You can <laughs> you can truly sense the past in those buildings. And it's it's yeah. incredible. And I, you know all the connection work he's done. Like I, I was new. I mentioned before the interview that I, the Rialto was my favorite theater and that was the historic theater I'm talking about. I was new to that community, just like Xavier was to his community. And, and I really appreciated how he went out. And the first thing he did was survey his community, get to know his people. And, and that's a similar thing that I did too. And it, it really does help um, to know when you're in that kind of a community center to, to see how you can serve it. It's not just a cookie cutter approach of following like what the big performing arts centers do. And, and it's so smart, you know, and it sounds like he's, you know, reaping those fruits. So yeah, I'm so glad that you connected so well, Brian. Um, Xavier is one of my dear friends in the industry and he and I could talk all day long about historic venues and management, the things that, that you know, we're dealing with, um, but also his philosophy on programming and connecting with the community and really understanding where this very small community is coming from and what they need and want out of that space to keep it going, I think is um, really genuine and so powerful and a great master lesson, honestly, in how to come into a community when you're new and form those bonds so quickly and build trust so quickly. So I'm really glad to hear that. I think one of the things that I enjoyed most about the, your conversation with Xavier was 
something that I have always sort of struggled to put into words. Um, and that is that purposeful partnerships uh, where you started talking about the way he worked with his local entities and not just as, as a rental environment. You know, when we run venues, we get into this, you know, this role of, you know, we rent the space, we do this for the space, we do this and this and this. Um, and I think naturally um, some of us approach that and, you know, provide those different services and view that. Um, he framed it as a partnership with his local community, meaning that, you know, they would provide, you know, the, the ticketing services and some of the tech, the technical needs and those kind of things. And obviously that's what comes with the rental, but him approaching that as a partnership versus just a transactional approach, I think is what creates those relationships. And obviously for a business side of things, like it creates return, uh, rentals, but also helps, you know, people feel welcomed into that space. And I think that transcends the organization that's renting the space, but also their audiences that's, that are coming in. And I think that that's a really great approach and a really great way to, to, to frame that as not so much a rental, but as a purposeful partnership. And I imagine too, in a venue like that, it's easy to get maybe distracted with um, the tourism crowd and the summer crowd that's coming and you want to kind of program for, you know, those those like major times where there's so many people in the area. But I don't know, half of the year, maybe even more than that, it's the residents that are there. And he, he sort of talked about how, you know, he programs kind of differently at different points in the year based on um, who is in the town. But the real driver to me, I think, is really focusing in on the people that live there and the people that really do feel ownership of that space because it is theirs. Other people get to come and enjoy it when they're on their vacation. But, you know, it feels like he's trying to make the identity of that space still for the people who live there and the people that have loved it for generations. And I, I, I parallel with that because I live in a relatively small town. We're in Marion, Illinois, and it was a historic venue it was burned by arson in 97 and it was an orpheum theater prior uh, to being the marion cultural and civic center the community came around and raised millions of dollars and gave their own money to rebuild the venue because it is such a staple of the community and because of all of that there's such a community ownership around the space that if you're not programming at some point to what those people want they are incredibly happy to let you know and and it makes the job so much easier whenever the community has that much investment in the space because they'll just let you know what they want and i love how he partners with local artists as well it really just benefits the whole arts communities raised when you all work together and support one another that way he's approaching it from something that is is at the core of him um what he said during when he was talking about that is he he strictly he said work with the community you have and I think that that's really interesting because that's what he's been doing with that venue throughout that entire process. He's working with the local partnerships, with his local organizations, and this is just one step further um, in making sure that the entirety of his community feels welcome in that building and, you know, it feels represented by that space. And I think that that's important. So I just wanted to take a moment to thank Xavier uh, so much for having a really frank and honest conversation with me about his role in the community and his personal and professional experiences in this area, the sphere of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, it's something that I'm personally very passionate about. I lead these efforts for my institution, um, but I certainly am not an expert and I'm always learning, always moving forward, looking and appreciating really wonderful conversations that I'm having with my colleagues and dear friends, frankly, like Xavier. Um, for me, it was really evident throughout our whole conversation, listening back to it, the importance of understanding your community, uh, asking them what they need in the moment, being 
really thoughtful about that and then finding those shared values. So whether it's with your community members or shared values between your staff and your leadership of your organization, and that's the core of where these conversations need to start and how you move forward. To to hear his his take on coming into a small community that's 98% white and his expectation going in and that he found that he was welcomed with open arms and with open minds and then found those shared values and was able to connect and connect in a way that was substantive for him and for the programming uh, to move his center forward. And so that was really cool. I also really liked his perspective on, you know, you're not going to be able to change who these people are. So moving forward with who I am and finding the shared values despite anything else in a way to serve your community. Yeah. And so as a podcast that's really talking broadly about the performing arts and touring industry, I think it's really important for us to lift up the EDIA conversation when it happens. But I also think it's important to realize that the five of us aren't experts in any of these topics. Um, And like Katie said, we're learning and we're learning from people who have more lived experience um, and a voice in the EDIA sphere. And it's our job to share with the audience who these great voices are and to point them in that direction. So if you are looking for some other information to learn more about EDIA topics from those experts, we recommend checking out APAP, the Association of Performing Arts Professionals. Um, Any of your state or regional consortiums have probably had EDIA training lately. They might even have it recorded. Um, and a podcast that I've personally really learned a lot from is um, it's called Seeing White. It is a podcast about um, race and social justice issues, and it's presented really incredibly. Excellent. I would also add Americans for the Arts has some really great resources on this topic as well. I think what this all really boils down to, and I think the, the crux of the conversation Xavier and I had is about relationships and not being fearful about building relationships. And I think we all come into our venues or new roles or new spaces with a little bit of uncertainty and assumptions about what the experience is going to be like. But I'm really grateful to Xavier for sharing his experience and demonstrating that it's not always uh, what we expect and that as long as you are open and transparent and honest and acting in good faith in your community, people will respond to that and you can build out amazing programs and uh, amazing partnerships and bring an amazing venue to life. Well, thank you all so much for spending time with me this afternoon. Thank you so much to my dear friend Xavier for being guests on the podcast. It was so much fun to actually just have a chance to sit down and have a conversation. Uh, Just the two of us versus always going, going, going and talking business all the time. So we really appreciate his time. We appreciate the time that you spend with us here on There's No Business Like, and we'll see you next time. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson. Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanhoek. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslife.com. Do I sound out bus I miss every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends.
Trying that again. Brian, edit this out. <laughs> of course. You don't have to say that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this wasn't okay, the perfect take? Is this <laughs> Oh, my God. You guys are killing me.